0: If you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Titus. There are some notes in the bulletin you can track along with the message this morning. This is week one in a new Sunday morning series. We spent the last several weeks talking about the church. What is the church? What does it mean to be part of a church? What should our expectations be when we come to church? How does the New Testament encourage us to think about this thing that we call church? Uh, This morning we're going to begin a series in Titus that will run through March and April and May, so we're going to spend three months in this short book of Titus. I want to give you a preview of where we're headed with the rest of this year, just so you have an idea of what's coming up on Sunday mornings. Uh, After we work our way through the book of Titus, we're going to spend the summer talking about Jesus. Uh, The series will be called Knowing Jesus, and each week we're going to talk about one aspect of his character, one Uh, thing that Jesus does for us, one aspect of how we relate to Him, and He relates to us. So we'll just spend the summer talking about Jesus, who He is, and what we need to know about His character, His person, His work. And then in the fall, we're going to go to the book of Psalms. Some of you were here when we did a summer series through the book of Psalms, and we picked individual Psalms and worked through those over the course of a summer. That's been a couple of years back. In the fall, we're going to take Psalm 119. And if you've ever read Psalm 119, you know that it breaks down according to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So we're going to take 22 Sundays in the fall, and we're going to look at one section each week and make our way through Psalm 119. So that's where we're headed this year. Uh, right now, we're headed to the book of Titus. And this is a wonderful book. It's a short book, one of the shortest books in the Bible, one of the shortest books in the New Testament. And it's a book about right leadership right doctrine, and right living. We're going to talk about those ideas all the way through the book of Titus. Right leadership, right doctrine, and right living. So just a few comments about the verses that we're about to read. Preliminary comments to have on the table before we read this passage. Paul describes himself here as a servant and as an apostle. Those are the two titles he used uh, to refer to himself in Titus 1 He's a servant of God, literally a slave of God and an apostle. And then he mentions this man named Titus. And he describes Titus as his child, his true child in a common faith. So I just want to make a brief comment about each of those uh, designations. When Paul calls himself a slave of God, slave of God and an apostle, What he's saying to Titus and to us is that his life was not his own. His life was controlled by someone else. As a slave, he had an owner, he had a master, and he submitted to God as his Lord, submitted to Jesus as his Lord. As an apostle, even though that's a a title of authority and designation and leadership, it also reminds us that Paul's life was not his own because the word apostle literally means sent One, one who is sent. So Paul wasn't just traveling around the Roman Empire preaching Paul's message, but he was traveling around the Roman Empire preaching a message that he had been sent to preach. He was a man under authority. Titus, you will find the name Titus in the New Testament 13 times once in this book, 12 times outside of this book. Paul refers to Titus as his true child in a common faith. That does not mean that Titus was his biological son. That means that Paul was his spiritual father and Paul would say something similar to Timothy in the letters that he wrote to Timothy, you're my true son in the faith. What do we know about Titus? Several things when you take all these uh, dozen or so references to him in the New Testament and you add them together. We know that he was a Gentile, he was not a Jew who is one of the Gentiles who was saved by faith in Jesus and brought in, and Paul worked with him in planting churches. We know that Titus was a gospel-centered man. He was a gospel-centered man. He wasn't just out telling people to straighten their lives up and get their spiritual act together, but he was out preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a man of integrity. There were times when Paul was collecting money for an offering that would be taken to Jerusalem. And one of the men put in charge of that offering was Titus. He was a man of integrity and character, and people knew that they could trust him. You understand, we collect offerings. We have people at our church that handle those offerings. We don't let just anyone off the street handle those. We say we need people with integrity and character to handle money. And Paul knew that Titus was that kind of man. He was also a capable man and a courageous man. When Paul had difficult situations in churches like Corinth and like Crete, he sent Titus. He didn't send Titus to the easy places, he sent him to the hard places because he knew this man Titus is gospel-centered, he's a man of character, he is capable, and he's courageous. And he can walk into these difficult situations and do what the Lord has called him to do. Notice in verse 5, we're jumping ahead just a little bit, verse 5, Paul says, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. He's talking about the church in Crete and his desire, Paul's desire is that the church be in order. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the church in Crete on this island. We know that Crete's an island in the Mediterranean and we're not even sure when Paul went to plant this church uh, on the island of Crete. Some people think it was before his first Roman imprisonment. Most Bible scholars seem to think it was after. He was released from house arrest in Rome that you read about at the end of the book of Acts. So we're not even sure when he went there but he started this church. He planted this church. He left Titus there. This is what we know. For all the things we don't know, this is what we know. Paul wanted Titus to put the church into order. He did not want the church to be chaotic. That's a New Testament principle that churches ought to be orderly. Things should not be chaotic and out of control in a church. And that applies not just to what happens in this room, but that happens, uh, applies to everything that happens in the life of our church. It ought to be orderly. Now, I just want to make the very simple observation, not trying to throw stones at any other church in particular, but that many times our churches are not orderly. Many times things in local churches are chaotic. In living in the Bible Belt, there tends to be one of two reactions to chaos in the church, neither of which is what Paul wanted Titus to see through on the island of Crete. One reaction is what you might call majority mob rule. And that's when the people in a particular church say, look, things are crazy and we're going to take control And everything at that point boils down to a vote. We're just going to vote about everything. And whatever the majority wants is what we're going to do. When churches get into this mode of operating and thinking, they tend not to think much about what God would have them do as a church or how they ought to function as the church. And things just tend to become, what does the majority want? And you know churches where this is how things function. Maybe you've been in churches that operated like this. But another reaction, equally bad, is to have a a strongman, mob boss, dictator, pastor who says, everything's out of control, I'm going to clamp down on this situation, and you guys are going to do what I want you to do. Whatever I tell you to do, that's what's going to happen. And you've probably been in churches where that was the situation, where you had one senior leader just running the whole thing like a mob racket. And whatever he said went. And if he made good decisions, well, that was good. But when he makes bad decisions, it tends to be not so good. Those are not what Paul wants Titus to do in Crete when he says put things in order. He doesn't want it to just devolve into mob majority rule. And he does not want Titus or any single man to rule with an iron fist. But he also doesn't want chaos. And as this book unfolds, you get a clear picture of how it is that a church could be put into order. Can I just give you a spoiler alert? It involves right leadership. It demands right doctrine. And it calls for right living. Right leadership, right doctrine, right living. When you have those things present in a church, you have a church that is put into order. Just a few notes. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, they are grouped together. And they're known as pastoral epistles, pastoral letters. So when you uh, read Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, you're reading letters that Paul wrote to churches. When you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, you're reading letters that Paul wrote to the pastors of churches. So there's a difference in the intended audience in the letters that Paul wrote to churches and the letters that he wrote to pastors. This particular pastoral epistle has four simple sections. No surprise here. There's an introduction, which we will cover this morning. Then there's a section on leadership, doctrine, and living. Here's the big idea of our passage Titus 1 1 4. The church has been given a mission for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's straight out of Titus chapter 1 verse 1. The church has been given a mission. And that mission involves the faith of God's elect. So take your copy of the Scriptures. Let's read these first four verses in Titus. And then ask God to bless the reading of His Word. Titus 1.1 says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness... In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Father, this morning as your people, we're grateful to read the scriptures. And we're grateful that uh, in years past, your spirit inspired the biblical authors to write these words. We read this letter from Paul to Titus. We understand we're not just reading the words of Paul to Titus, but We're reading Paul's words to Titus as he was carried along by your spirit, and that these words are not only Paul's words, but they're your words. So Lord, we recognize what we're dealing with, and we ask that you would add blessing to the reading of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We spent several weeks talking about the church, who we are and what we ought to be about, and here we are again Titus chapter 1, we're talking about the mission of the church. I just want to think about this big idea with you. The church has been given a mission for the sake of the faith of God's elect. What was running through Paul's mind when he sets the stage for everything that we're going to study in Titus, and he's explaining to Titus why he's writing this letter. Titus, I'm writing to you for the sake of... Of the faith of God's elect. I think there's at least two things we could say about what's running in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Number one is that Paul believes in the sovereignty of God. And number two, Paul believed in the responsibility of man. He believed that God was sovereign over absolutely everything, including the salvation of sinners. And he believed that men and women, human beings, boys and girls, people were responsible moral agents before God. This idea of God's sovereignty you see when he talks here in verse 1 about God's elect. God has an elect people. It's a biblical truth. You don't just find it in Titus 1. You find it throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, and particularly the New Testament. And you understand that these elect people are called to be people of faith. That is, they are responsible moral agents before God for their religion, their spirituality. Their faith is what they are called to do, to be people who have faith in God. God has a role in all of this. His job is electing. Human beings have a role in all of this. Their job is faith. And Paul believed in both of these things together. Let's just think for a moment about the sovereignty of God over salvation. Not that long ago, we talked about a verse... In the Old Testament, Jonah 2.9. Jonah 2.9, the prophet begrudgingly acknowledged salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah did not think that he could bring salvation to the Ninevites. Jonah didn't think the Ninevites could conjure up their own salvation. Jonah came to understand salvation comes from the Lord. He is sovereign over matters of salvation. Jesus agreed with Jonah. You can look in chapters in the Gospel of John, like John chapter 6, John chapter 17, very clearly indicate that God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners. Both of these passages talk about the Father giving a people to the Son, and the Son is going to save these people, and all of the people given to the Son will be saved. Jesus is talking about the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners. Paul talks about this. In Romans 8 and 9, he talks about it again very clearly in Ephesians 1 and 2, that God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners, that no sinner will be saved apart from God's sovereign work that began in eternity past and will culminate in eternity future. Now, I acknowledge and I recognize that some people don't like this idea. Some people don't like the idea that God's sovereign over salvation. And some people want to take credit for their own salvation. Now, they know enough to say, yes, Jesus, I love Jesus, it's all Jesus. But at the end of the day, they want to say, this was something I decided. This was something I did. This was something that I came to a realization about. People have never liked the idea that God was sovereign over salvation. Jonah didn't like it. Jonah was angry about it. When Jesus talked about the sovereignty of God and salvation in John chapter 6, if you keep reading to the end of that passage, after people listened to what Jesus said about the sovereignty of God and salvation, they put their heads together and they said, that's too much. This guy's talking about stuff that we don't want to listen to and many people walked away and they didn't follow him anymore. They didn't want to hear it. Paul knew that people objected to the sovereignty of God and salvation. That's why when you read Romans 8 and 9, he anticipates all of your questions and your objections. Some will say this, and then he answers. Some will say this, and then he answers. Some will say this, and then he answers the objection. He knows that people object to this idea that God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. Many people hear this idea that God is sovereign in The salvation of sinners from eternity past to eternity future. I know this because they say it to me regularly. They say, then I guess we don't really have much to do, do we? I mean, if God's in control of it all, He's going to do it. Why did I give to the missions offering? Why do I need to share my faith? It's awkward. I don't like to do it. If God's sovereign over salvation, why should I do it? Why does Chris Harrington waste time training our mission teams to share the gospel in Kenya? If God has a people and he's going to save them, why do we need to do anything? And I'll be honest with you, without being mean to you, those are foolish objections. They're childish objections. They're unbiblical objections. Jonah, who understood that salvation was from the Lord, also came to the very painful realization that he would, in fact, go to Nineveh and call those people to repentance. God didn't just zap them with repentance. He sent Jonah to call them to repentance. John chapter 6 is not in contradiction with John chapter 3. John chapter 3, John 3, 16. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will have eternal life. That is your responsibility. You will be held responsible for it. Romans 10 follows Romans 8 and 9, and in Romans 10, Paul says, faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the Word of God. That's why we have to send people to preach the gospel message, because people have to hear it. If they don't hear it, they can't believe it, Paul says. If they don't believe it, they can't call on Jesus for salvation. And his overarching point in Romans 10 is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on the name of Jesus for salvation, Chris prayed for you earlier if you've never done that. If you would do it today, the promise of the Bible is that you will be saved. Because faith comes from hearing the good news about Jesus and crying out to Him and calling to Him in faith. In Ephesians 1 and 2, where Paul talks about the sovereignty of God and salvation, he says, we are saved by grace through Faith, through faith, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you were here recently, we talked about this, I think, two weeks ago. We talked about the church as the field of God. We looked at 1 Corinthians 3. And Paul said to the church in Corinth, I planted, Apollos watered, who gave the growth? God gave the growth. Not Paul, not Apollos. That was not within their capacity. Their job was to go and to preach and to teach and to tell people about Jesus and to trust that God in his sovereignty would give growth to what they planted and what they watered. Titus 1, it's the same idea. God's role is electing, our role is faith. God is sovereign and we are responsible. Now, what I want to do is to follow Paul's train of thought. We could trace that rabbit more, and maybe you have questions about that. But I want to trace what Paul's saying. And in what follows in verse 1, in the beginning of verse 2, Paul begins to talk about faith, saving faith, true, genuine faith. And I just want you to see what Paul is thinking about genuine faith. How did Paul want Titus to understand this faith, the faith of God's elect? Three truths. Number one, faith involves knowledge of the truth. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. In Paul's mind, there is no space between a person who has saving faith and that person having a knowledge of the truth. Those two things go together. You have to have a knowledge of the truth in order to have saving faith. Does that mean that you need to be prepared by next Sunday to pass an advanced systematic theology exam? No. As much as I'd love to give you one, no. It does mean that there needs to be a baseline comprehension of biblical truth in order for you to have saving faith. When any person at Emmanuel wants to be baptized, adult, child, teenager, anybody, we talk to them about four C's. There's four C's that we're looking for in a person's life. The first one is comprehension. The second one is conviction. The third one is commitment. And the fourth one is church. Person has to comprehend the truth of the gospel. They have to feel genuine conviction of sin. They have to have made a commitment to follow Jesus, not just pray a prayer and get wet, but to follow Jesus. And they have to be committed to being part of a church. If those four C's aren't in place, then somebody's not ready to be baptized. And it begins with comprehension. It begins with a knowledge of the truth. Some of you were here just a few weeks ago. We hosted the Bordens, International Mission Board Missionaries. They serve in Austria. Carrie Borden shared with our kids. Lance shared in this room with our adults and our teenagers and our college students. One of the things Lance Borden said is that serving in Austria... He is serving in a post-Christian culture. He's serving in a place where Christianity was once embraced, but many years ago it was passed by. People have moved on from Christianity. They think of it as a relic of the past. And they are not grounded in any sort of biblical truth or biblical worldview. So Lance told us that when they begin to share the gospel with people in Austria... Some of you, I think you struggled with what he said. He said, on average, it takes 70 to 80 gospel conversations before an Austrian person is ready to put their faith in Jesus. 70, seven zero to 80 gospel conversations before an Austrian is ready to trust Christ as Savior and Lord. And some of you heard that and you thought, Man, Austrians must be dumb. Seven, you got to hear it 70 to 80 times. Now, you didn't say that out loud. You have manners. You're polite people. But in your head, you thought, what in the world? 70 to 80 times that. They must be doing it wrong. 70 to 80 times. Why does it take so long? It's because these people never went to Sunday school as children. They didn't go to vacation Bible school. They didn't go to youth camp. They didn't attend a service like this one ever, period, at all. They don't have any comprehension of the truth. And what Lance was saying to us is we are starting from the bottom level. And it takes a while to put enough bricks in place in that wall to someone can have an adequate comprehension of the truth so that they can trust in Jesus. It doesn't happen overnight. If you travel to Kenya with Chris this summer, you will not be traveling to a post Christian culture. You'll be traveling to a place that is still on the uptick as a culture in accepting Christianity, and you'll be hard pressed to find an atheist. Hard pressed. I've never met one in Kenya. I'm sure there's some, but I've never bumped into them. They're very spiritual people, they have lots of religious beliefs. But they are a culture in many places, in many parts of the country, that they are coming out of an animistic worldview. And they too, many times, lack a comprehension of the truth. And so when we send mission teams over, they don't just go talk about Jesus. They talk about who God is. They talk about who we are, what sin is. Then we talk about who Jesus is. We have to build some things in place before we just ask people to pray a prayer interest in Jesus. Can I suggest to you that Odessa, Texas is no different than Austria or Kenya? And that living in the Bible belt, you live in a place where many people have had just enough church to be inoculated to the gospel. Just enough to think, "Oh yeah, Jesus, I got it. Know all about it. Went to VBS when I was 5." You don't have to talk to me. I know all about it. But it'll Oftentimes, a simple conversation with those people, even people who live right here in Odessa, Texas, will reveal the fact that they do not have a knowledge of the truth. And Paul says that's essential for saving faith. Not just repeating a prayer or a mantra, but beginning with knowledge of the truth. Secondly, faith results in a life of godliness. Notice the order. You don't have to reach a certain level of godliness to then be a person of faith. But when you have saving faith, one of the results is a life of godliness. That's what Paul says. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with, it lines up with, it's compatible with, a life of godliness. Does that mean... That you have to live a sinless life once you pray to accept Jesus as your Savior? No. What it does mean that when you have a knowledge of the truth and you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the direction and the trajectory of your life needs to change. And you need to begin to live a life marked by repentance and confession and agreeing with God about what's right and what's wrong. And no, you're not going to be sinless. But you will be a repentant sinner and a humble sinner and somebody who wants to fight sin in their life and your life will move in the direction of godliness. Thirdly, faith looks to the hope of eternal life. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Eternal life. One of the commentators I read this week is a man named Robert Yarborough, and he makes an insightful comment about Paul talking about eternal life here. He says this: Paul's reference to eternal life reminds Titus at the outset of the otherworldly dimension of his very this worldly assignment. His assignment is this worldly, it's Crete, it's real people in a real church, with real problems, in a real place, it's a this-worldly assignment. But when he brings up eternal life, we're reminded that this this worldly assignment has otherworldly ramifications. Titus has responsibilities on Crete. Churches have responsibilities. When we have vacation Bible school, can I tell you one of the one of the this-worldly responsibilities, we need some people to make cookies. We need cookies. And the workers at our VBS are always blessed by a food room. And some of you make food. We need food. Those kids wear us out. Bring the food. That is a this-worldly thing. My stomach, this stomach, and this world need some food during VBS. Some cookies and some snacks in the snack room. It's a this-worldly job. When we go to Kenya, Chris has asked for suitcases. What a spiritual thing. Could we have an old suitcase? It's a this-worldly thing. After church today, we're going to have a finance team meeting. We're not going like, to pray for some mystical revelation. We're going to get financial statements out. We're going to read the numbers. We're going to see how much money's in the bank. What do we spend? What's our plans? What do we it's this-worldly stuff. Lots of this-worldly things to do in a church. And they all, when ordered rightly, have eternal implications. All of them. Because when a church is not ordered rightly and not handling its disworldly assignment, there are men, women, boys and girls who will miss out on the hope of eternal life. And Paul's reminding Titus, I left you in a place Real people, real place, real problems. You're going to have to figure some stuff out and it's going to take guts. But it's important, Titus, because eternal life is at stake. When you come to this place, some of the things that we do are very spiritual. Some of the things that we do are very this-worldly. And all the things that we do, eternal life is on the table. Eternal life is on the table. That's why in verse 4, Paul says, grace to you and peace. It's God's grace, His unmerited favor that brings you into a right relationship with God, a relationship marked by peace. That's why in verse 3, he talks about God as our Savior. Verse 4, he talks about Jesus as our Savior. He came to seek us and to save us, not just so that we could be in this club together that meets in this room, so that we could have the hope eternal life. Now, I just want to put these three aspects of saving faith on the screen and make one more observation. How do Paul want Titus to understand the faith of God's elect? Knowledge of the truth, life of God, lent us eternal life. Americans are very interested in eternal life. Very interested. They don't want to die. Americans don't want to die. They want to live forever we can't physically live forever, we want to know that we can spiritually live forever. So Americans are very interested in eternal life, which means most churches are more than happy to talk to people about eternal life. Most churches are driven by not the scriptures, not the glory of God, but they're driven by the felt wants and needs of the people that they're trying to reach. And so if people want eternal life, they'll talk about eternal life. But most Americans are not particularly interested in the truth because we live in an increasingly postmodern culture where truth is relative and no one can claim to have a corner on it. So churches try to soft pedal on this because it's not what people want. And Americans are certainly not interested in a life marked by godliness. So you hear precious little about those things even as churches try to talk about eternal life. And I would just make the observation as you read Titus 1, I do not think the Apostle Paul intended those things to be dividable and to be parceled out to the highest bidder. You want one but not two? That's fine. That's not what Paul has in mind. Paul is simply describing what saving faith is. It's a package deal. This is not first cafeteria where you take what you want and you pass on the salad. What is saving faith? How do we understand it? Well, it starts with the knowledge of the truth. If you don't have that, you can't have saving faith. It involves conviction of sin and commitment to follow Jesus, meaning a life of godliness. Not so that you can have eternal life, but because you do have it. And when those pieces are in place, saving faith certainly gives you the hope of eternal life. Now, we're short on time, but I want to look at verse 2 and 3. There's a few things in verse 2 and 3 I don't want you to miss. What did Paul want Titus to remember about the gospel story? Number one, the gospel was promised before the ages began. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, God who never lies, God promised this life before the ages began. Literally what he says is before time eternal. God made a promise. This is more than God promising the gospel to an Old Testament figure like Abraham. This is God making a promise regarding eternal life before the ages began. This is before I was here, and before you were here, and before Abraham was here, and before Adam was here. This is before, as Paul would say to the church in Ephesus, before the foundation of the world a promise was made. Who was there before the foundation of the world? God was there. The triune God was there. Father, Son, and Spirit were there. And this promise is what many theologians would call the covenant of redemption. It's the promise by which the Father promised a people to the Son. The Son promised to suffer and die for these people to save them. And the Spirit promised to bring these people to life through the preaching of the Word of God. And what I'm saying to you is if at any point in your life you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... Your faith did not begin simply the moment that you prayed a prayer to trust in Jesus. It began in the promise of the triune God before the ages began. And secondly, it was made manifest in the proper time. It was revealed in the proper time. So you can look at a passage like Galatians 4, Jesus was born in the fullness of time. You can look at a passage like Romans 5, 6, Christ died for us at the right time. You can look at Titus 1, that the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus have been revealed in the preaching of the gospel at the right time, the proper time this was made manifest. Thirdly and fourth, to bring it home to the church. The gospel has been entrusted to the church and it must be communicated through preaching. God, who never lies, promised eternal life before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. When you put all these pieces together, this sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. It sounds like something, we went to watch a superhero movie not that long ago and in the movie, we traveled to another dimension and there were people doing amazing things and it was very otherworldly. This, this is like that, believe it or not. You read these opening verses to Titus and you think, oh, it's an, it's an introduction. We just say, dear so-and-so. Paul had a few more words to say. It's just the introduction to the letter. This is an amazing passage. Before the foundation of the world, before time began before the ages there was a promise made a promise from the father to the son and from the son to the father and to the spirit this promise to save a people God promised to save a people he promised to himself to save a people he promised to save a people for himself and in the fullness of time this gospel message was made manifest Through the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the preaching of the good news of the gospel. And it is to the church that this mission has been entrusted. This mission of preaching and proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. Calling men and women, boys and girls, to agree with God about their sin and to put their faith in the Lord Jesus. What does that faith look like? Well, it begins with comprehension of the truth. Knowledge of the truth. This faith involves a life of godliness. And it results in the hope of eternal life. And what Paul is saying to Titus is this, this Titus is Paul's mission in life. He traveled around the Roman Empire. And it was to be Titus's mission on Crete. Of this worldly assignment with other worldly implications. And it's to be our mission as a church in Odessa, Texas. A real place with real people with real issues and real struggles with this worldly things that have to happen in the life of this church all with other worldly implications. We preach the good news of the gospel for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And we plead with you this morning, as Chris did earlier, if you have never Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith comes through hearing. From hearing the good news. The good news that a holy God sent His Son to die as a sacrifice for sinners. So that if you will repent and believe, you're going to have the hope of eternal life.